We interrupt your regularly scheduled podcast to bring you Listen, Watch, Discuss. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome back for the second time tonight. Uh, as always, I'm your host, Brent Aiken, uh, of Listen, Watch, Discuss. And in... Um, and as as you remember, as you may remember, if you uh, listened to my previous episode already, you'll know that uh, this episode is going to be me ranking all of Quentin Tarantino's movies. So, um, with that out of the way, let's get let's get started. And also, uh, just so you're aware, I'm going to be counting Kill Bill as two movies. I know that's a kind of a controversial opinion, quote unquote. Um, by a lot of fans, especially um, especially considering that Tarantino counts Kill Bill one and two as one movie, but but since they were released, you know, a year apart or well, technically half a year, but but you know, one was released in two thousand three, and two was released in two thousand four, and they both have their own credits and everything. You know, I'm I'm just gonna count them as two movies. So, um, but I mean, a lot of fans do. So, I'm I'm one of those fans. So I'm gonna count them like that. So. Um, okay, so, yeah, with that, out of the, with that out of the way, let's begin. So, uh, at number 10, we have Jackie Brown. Now, I know a lot of fans, I know a lot of fans, uh, love Jackie Brown, and I know that, uh, some of them even, uh, have it as, like, a top five film. Some, some of, some fans, it's their favorite film by Quentin Tarantino, but me personally, I just, uh, I mean, it was good. Again, and and let me, uh, before I go any further, let me, uh, you know, uh, start by saying that um, all of the, I love all 10 of these films. It's just, obviously, it's a ranking. It's a list. Something had to go at the bottom. And to me, Jackie Brown was the one that had to go at the bottom. Uh, It's a good movie, don't get me wrong. But it's just, it's my least favorite, just because... It, while it feels like Quentin Tarantino, it feels somewhat the least like his. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's still lengthy scenes of dialogue, um, you know, a little, a little, a little bit of uh, non-linear storytelling and feet, <laughs> but uh, a lot of Bridget Fonda feet. Um, but uh, but you know, it's just maybe maybe it had something to do with the fact that this is his only film. This is his only movie that was an adaptation of a previous work, uh, that being the 1992 novel Rum Punch. Um, so yeah, it's, it's his only work. It's his only movie that's, has been adapted from something else. Um, but, but I mean, that being said, just cause it's at the bottom doesn't mean it's not a, doesn't mean it's a bad movie. To me, it's still a great movie, but, uh, basically the movie is about six different characters, uh, flight attendant, a, a gun runner, um, yeah, a flight attendant, a gun runner, his friend, uh, the gun runner's girlfriend, just a stoner beach bunny, a cop, and a bail bondsman, um, basically going after half a million dollars in cash. And they all kind of are going after it for their own reasons, and they have their own means and their own reasons. And, um, you know, basically it's them trying to um, get to the money first. And uh basically Jackie Brown is is um basically kind of playing 
both the cops that she's helping get the money back from, or I mean, not from, but the, she's playing the cops that are trying to get the money from Ordell, her, her, uh, the gun runner she works for. And she's also playing Ordell as well. So, um, and then while that's going on, Lewis, Ordell's friend and Ordell's girlfriend, uh, Michelle are also trying to, um, play the play Ordell as well, trying to get back the, the money from him. So, uh, I mean, not Michelle, Melanie, sorry, I, <laughs> my bad. I don't know why I called her Michelle. Um, so yeah, so yeah, so it does have, uh, the signature, some signature, Tar- the signature Tarantino, um, you know, tropes, you know, and signature Tarantino, uh, you know, just, uh, style of storytelling and the, you know, the, I guess the tropes, yeah, the tropes you would find in a Quentin Tarantino movie. But, um, and what, and like I said, while it is a great movie, it's just personally, it's my least favorite from his, but that being said, the acting is really great and the story is told really well. So, um, and yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's Samuel L, it's Samuel L. Jackson's second role in a Quentin Tarantino movie. And it's definitely not his last, as you'll see further down the list. Uh, okay, at number nine, we have Death Proof. Um, oh yeah, I forgot to say, Jackie Brown came out in 1997. Yeah, so, uh, so Death Proof is a, um, came out in 2007, and it stars Kurt Russell as a stuntman who, he's just a flat-out psychopath. He murders young, he takes young innocent women and murders them using his what he claims to be a death proof stunt car because he's a stunt man. You know, he has a car that he, you know, claims is death proof, but only in his seat as we find out later when he kills this uh, poor girl. Um, so yeah, it was, um, this one, I liked this one a little better, even though this is probably the Quentin Tarantino that has the most talking and the least of anything else going on. I still, to me, I still put it above Jackie Brown because I liked the stylistic choice he went with with this one because it's basically kind of it. The film basically pays homage to slasher movies and muscle car films from the seventies. And the if you when you're watching it, you can see that it's shot like you you can see like filters and like little specks of film like like flash up on the screen every now and then. And and it looks like it was filmed in the seventies. Like, you know how, like, cause obviously technology advances, you know, the law, you know, um, with each passing year, but back in the seventies and sixties, you know, the film quality might not have been so great. And so you had kind of like, you know, you could see static on the screen uh, on whatever you were watching, you know, um, of whatever, pro- of whatever show or movie you were watching, you know, you'd see static or just the film kind of, you know, like a little, spot of light just flash on and and that's added into the movie and I really do like um uh, that he went that Quentin went as far as to add that in there to make it look like it was a film taken like straight from the 70s almost as if like it was a lost film from the 70s that he got his hands on and released as his own you know or like retooled it and um you know released as his own so uh and and it's also cool because there's this one scene where stuntman Mike is talking to the first group of girls and, um, and he, 
and then it just cut like he's talking to them and then it just cuts like to five minutes later like to the next scene and it's like well that was spliced together almost as if like some of the footage burned or they edited it out just poorly you know and and that and that was done on purpose so i appreciate that i also appreciate the fact that this movie and yeah a lot of quentin tarantino movies have a good majority of the main characters die if not all of them but this one is like one of the few where I just, I admire this film a lot because it has the balls to kill off, like, literally 90% of the main cast in the first half of it. Like, we've gotten to know these three girls, um, we've, we've gotten to know, um, them so well, and, uh, we, Jungle Julia, Shauna and Arlene, or Shanna and Arlene, and, um, and also their friend... Lana, yeah. We well, we didn't get to know Lana as much, but we got we got to know all four of them to a certain extent. The other three more than Lana, and then and then just to have stuntman Mike just come out of nowhere. It, I mean, you know, turn on his lights in the middle of the night and ram right into them, um, and just kill, obliterate them is just like, you know, not a lot. Not a lot of movies do would do that, and um, and that's where I got to give it up to Quentin Tarantino for doing that. And also the end when he, I mean, the second half when we meet. The second group of girls, Abernathy, um, <clears throat> excuse me, when we meet Abernathy, Zoe, Kim, and, um, was it Pam? No, and Lee. Yeah, Lee, it was, uh, yeah, Lee, Abernathy, Zoe, and Kim. Uh, when we meet those four, and then when we see them, you know, because, cause like, Mike thinks that the plan's going to work again when he does this the second time in a completely new state, and then just to have it fail so spectacularly and have them beat the shit out of him and kill him at the end was just a really satisfying way to end the movie. And the fact that it literally just ends with them, like Abernathy um, kicks his head in and they all and they all cheer, yay! And then it literally just, the end flashes on the screen. It just cuts to the credits. That was, was a great way to end, like, on, literally on a high note, you know. Um, and, uh, and yeah, Stuntman Mike, he was, he's one of the... Kurt Russell was great as him, and Rosario Dawson was also great as Abernathy, and Mary Elizabeth Winstead was great as Lee. But yeah, but um, but yeah, Kurt Kurt Russell really played a great psychopath in this movie, and he definitely got what was coming to him. So, uh, yeah, great movie, great, you know, kind of parody homage of seventies films, you know, particularly slasher movies and muscle car movies. Um, so yeah, I think it earned. I think it at least earned a spot above Jackie Brown to me. So, uh, at number eight we have Reservoir Dogs. Now this was Quentin Tarantino's first movie. It's uh, it came out in 1992, and it's basically about six individuals who, uh, they're diamond thieves, who are hired by um, Nice Guy Eddie and his father, uh, or this they're hired by this guy named Nice Guy Eddie and his father um, Lawrence. And, um, I mean, not Lawrence, Joe, sorry. And, uh, they basically, they, they, in order to avoid, you know, them getting to know each other too well, they all have code names of a different color, you know, Mr. Brown, Mr. Blonde, Mr. Pink, etc. you know, and, uh, basically the plot is them trying to, um, you know, uh, steal a, uh, you know, rob a jewelry store. But what's interesting and fascinating about this film is, Whereas with mo- other crime movies, you'd expect the bulk of the movie to show the heist going down, 
the, uh, Quentin decided, you know what, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do the opposite of what people would expect and basically show the, the events before and after the heist. And, 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 you know, and, and we, and what, and I think that's cool because like I said, that's not something that you typically would see or would think would even make a good movie. Cause you'd think, okay, it's a crime movie. You, you would kind of want to see the jewelry heist and, but, but, you know, it's, it's really more about that. I mean, it's more about it, the fact that we don't see it actually leads to some really great intense moments like, uh, and it really makes you think because you're like, okay, so who's left? Because some of the characters, some of the thieves, um, make it to this warehouse where, by the way, that's where most of the movie, like 80, 85% of the movie takes place in this abandoned warehouse. So like some, some of the thieves made it to the warehouse and some haven't. And you're like, okay, well, did they die? Did the cops, you know, arrest them? Are they just not here yet? And, and not only that, but we're introduced to the fact that one of them is a rat and we don't know who. And so we're like, okay, you got this mystery of, you know, who set them up, you know, who's the rat? Um, where are the others? You know, um, how did they all get away? You know, and we kind of see that. And there's, and it, it also adds to the suspense of the movie because there's this one scene where Mr. Orange, played by Harvey Keitel, is talking to Mr. Um, Blonde, played by Michael Madsen, who um, who apparently Mr. Blonde um, started shooting up the place. And that's what caused, you know, the whole plan to go awry. But since we didn't see the robbery, we're kind of just, we kind of just have to take Mr. Orange's word on it. So we don't really know if we don't really know the full extent of Mr. Blonde's capabilities, you know, we don't know how much of a, you know, psychopath he actually is until the scene later when he, you know, if you've seen the movie where he chops off that cop's ear, you know, cuts up his face and almost burns him alive, you know, just because he wanted to torture him, not because he wanted to get information out of him, but just because he liked torturing people, people, just because he liked torturing people, you know, like the psychopath he is. Um, but yeah, so, and also not only that, but it is one of the few Quentin Tarantino movies, or it's a, it's another, and it's, and ironically it is the first where, um, but it's the first of his movies and one, one of the many movies that, uh, of, of his, where literally almost all of the main cast dies. The only one that makes it out in the end is Mr. Pink and it's kind of left oblivious or ambiguous. It's kind of, it's kind of left up in a way, to the viewer's imagination as to what happened. Because the last we see of him, there's this big shootout in the warehouse. Mr. Pink's the only one left standing. And he's like, oh shit, what do I do? And he just grabs the diamonds, runs out the front door of the warehouse. And, you know, we're told there are cops outside, but we don't know, you know, after he runs out the door, we don't see what happened. So he could have either been shot down by the cops, he could have just been arrested by the cops, or he could have gotten away, you know? Like, maybe maybe he somehow got away, you know? Um... And we don't know, but, uh, but yeah, it's a great movie and, um, great start to his film career and, uh, yeah, really good. Um, nothing really much more else to say about that one. So, uh, up next we have The Hateful Eight. Now The Hateful Eight, in my opinion, is Reservoir Dogs, but done just a little bit better. It was a, it's, uh, his, again, if you go by his way of counting it, it's his eighth movie, but I'm going to say it's his ninth because, you know, I'm counting Kill Bill as two movies. So his eighth movie or his ninth movie, 
uh, The Hateful Eight came out in 2015, and it's basically eight strangers, uh, it's basically these eight strangers end up in a cabin during the middle of a blizzard. It's like six, twelve, six, around six to twelve years after the Civil War, um, to give you, uh, uh, references to the time period they're in. And basically, it's just these eight strangers, really hateful, you know, as, as the title suggests, um, these uh, hateful group of characters trying to make it until the blizzard's over, trying to make it together in this cabin, you know, without, you know, killing each other. And, um, and it's just, it's really suspenseful, and you're, and and there's this great mystery, like, like with Reservoir Dogs, as to who, uh, I mean, as to, you know, what's going to happen, and, um, there's this great mystery set up of who poisoned the coffee, which one of them is, is working with the prisoner of the hangman, and, uh, or of the bounty hunter, John Ruth, the hangman, and, um, and again, it, um, like, um, all of Quentin Tarantino's movies, it, um, I mean, not all of them, but, but like Reservoir Dogs, um, everyone at the end dies, so you're kind of left like, oh man, you know, that was, it's just, and, and it's, it's kind of a slow build, and, and most of it, it, like, like Reservoir Dogs, takes place in one location, mainly this cabin, and then we get a scene, we get a little bit of, uh, some time of, uh, this state, in a stagecoach, and we get some time outside, but for the majority of the movie, it's in this cabin on one day, you know, but yeah, just, it really does great, uh, it makes great use of its characters and the location and the time period. Um, and it, it, in my opinion, it's, it's probably one of his few movies that would work the best as a, as a stage play, which is actually what Quentin is working on now. He's working on a stage play version of this movie. So, um, so yeah, it, it was really great. And, um, like I said, a little better version of Reservoir Dogs, in my opinion. And, um, yeah, earned a good spot at number seven. So, or I think it, it earned, um, that was a good spot to put it in. Um, so number six, we have Kill Bill Volume 1. And, uh, this is basically, uh, paying an homage to, uh, this movie pays, it's kind of paying an homage to martial arts films, samurai movies, spaghetti westerns. Um, and it's basically, it star, it stars, uh, Uma Thurman, as this unnamed, at least you know, in the first movie, she's unnamed. She's just the bride. But she uh, basically swears uh, revenge on her former team, on this team of assassins she used to work for, called the Deadly Viper Assassination Squad, or the Divas for short. Um, she swears revenge on them and their leader, Bill, after they try to kill her and her unborn child on her wedding day. So... And, and, you know, and then we, we just, uh, throughout one and later on two, we see her, you know, one by one crossing off each name on the list and until she eventually gets to Bill. Um, but yeah, Kill Bill one's a great movie. It, um, like, like with, um, a lot of other Quentin Tarantino movies, not all of them, but a lot of them, uh, it's kind of told out of order because we start off with her second kill, um, you know, in which we don't know at, you know, yet, uh, but we start, or we actually, we start off with what looks like her supposed death at the wedding, and then we cut back, and then we cut to later, after she's already killed, or we cut to her killing her second victim, we don't find that out until after she's killed her, she crosses her name off, we see another name above hers, we're like, 
oh, so she's already killed it, you know, and then, and then later we go back to, which is ironically, her first kill is the end battle of the movie. Like it's the, it's the climax of the movie, which I love. Um, but yeah, it's just, it has some, it has some great fighting and, um, yeah, it's great action. The fight between the bride, um, or as we later find out in volume two, Beatrix, uh, the fight between Beatrix and the crazy 88 towards the end, um, is one of my favorite fight scenes, um, ever. And, uh, it rivals that of the fight scenes in John Wick to me. Cause I don't know. I, I got serious John Wick and I, and, and that's, and I guess, uh, people who watched John Wick might've gotten some Kill Bill vibes when they saw John Wick the first time. But since I saw John Wick first, that's, you know, why I made the comparison. But yeah, I, I got some real serious John Wick vibes from this movie in a good way, of course. And it was just a great movie. The acting was great. Uma Thurman, again, this is her second role. We'll eventually we'll get to her, th- uh, the movie that was her first role, later down the list. But this was her second role in a Quentin Tarantino movie, and it's um, she was great. She she you know act she was great um, in it, as well as uh, as Bill. Bill was great in it. We don't we you know we don't see too much of Bill. We don't see his face um, at all. But you can just hear in his voice and his tone and his appearance and his demeanor that he's kind of like a, you know, sinister guy. You know, he's kind of like a pragmatic evil guy, you know. And, uh, and but the fact that he's like shrouded in mystery throughout all of the first one makes you, you know, really makes you want to see the second one even more. And the fa- and, uh, and yeah, Lucy Liu and Vivica A. Fox were great as Oren and um, Vernita. But yeah, but not only does uh, not, you know, leaving Bill's face, his identity shrouded in mystery, you know, make you want to see the first one. But that line at the end of it, when we find out that Beatrix's child is still alive, yeah, that's just such a great wham line. It's like, oh, my God, you know, like, we, you know, it, it it makes you immediately want to see the second one. So, uh, so yeah, great action movie. Um, and but but uh, but. Um, Kill Bill 2 uh, is, in my opinion, a little better. It's not the next choice, but it's a little further on down the list. So, uh, Number five, we have Inglorious Bastards. This was um, uh, 2009. This movie came out in 2009, and it's a war movie. Basically, it's a revisionist history movie, and it's basically retelling... It's, it's about this group of Jewish-American soldiers led by... Uh, Tennessee, a Tennessee lieutenant named Aldo Rain, played by Brad Pitt, and uh, it's basically, and and they're called the Bastards. That's where the name comes in. They're the Bastards, um, and they basically, uh, it's them and this Jewish uh, French girl who owns a cinema, both plotting separate plots to take down uh, Hitler and the rest of the Nazis, and um, and there and um. And while that's going on, there's this uh, SS colonel, uh, Hans Landa, played by Christoph Waltz, who is um, trying to track down uh, the bastards. You know, so, so we have two plots trying to take down the Nazis, and then we have another plot of uh, this Colonel Hans, uh, or as he's uh, nicknamed in the movie, the Jew Hunter, uh, trying to, you know, put an end to the bastards once and for all. And... Um, and it was, uh, I really do like this movie. I really do think it's, uh, 
definitely top five material, but it's right at five because just because I love the other four, you know, that are coming up a little bit more than this one, but it's a great movie. It's a great, like I said, it's a great revisionist history movie. And, um, and, uh, Brad Pitt was great <laughs> as, uh, Aldo Rain. Eli Roth was, he's, a, he's another of my favorite characters. He's another one of my favorites in this movie. Uh, he's, He's uh, Donnie Donovich, uh, but his, he goes by the nickname the Bear Jew because he's this kind of he he's not like over the top muscular, but he's like this kind of muscular, really, you know, testosterone fueled, just this badass with a bat that beats the shit out of the Nazis whenever they don't comply with them. Like whenever they if they kidnap some Nazis, try to get information out of them, they don't comply. They just get brain Donnie out and smash get him to smash their heads in with a bat till they die. Kind of reminds me of Negan, you know, from The Walking Dead. When I saw that, when I saw uh, Inglorious Bastards a few weeks ago, and that scene, the first scene of Hans, or I mean not Hans, the first scene of Donnie, you know, beating the shit out of that one Nazi, I'm like, wow, that remind this reminds me of Negan because Negan, if you've never seen The Walking Dead, he's that was one of his first scenes was him beating the shit out of two fan favorite characters, but um. But yeah, and Christoph Waltz was great as Hans. He he was great as an evil, maniacal, you know, like sociopathic, you know, dictator basically. Just this, you know, doing doing what he had to do to um to to move up. And 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 also, you know, later when we find out that he's trying to betray the Nazis, you know, it it really adds to his character. It's like, wow, this guy really is like a sniveling evil betraying asshole, you know, like it just betray his own people like that just to get out of it. And, um, and this, this movie reminds me of Rogue One a lot because, well, okay, there are uh, three characters make it out. Everyone else dies. Like there's only three characters that make it out alive, but it reminds me of Rogue One in a way because Rogue One was about a group of unsung heroes. Like no one knew who they were. Um, they were just a little ragtag team of misfits in a way going up against this big powerhouse of a of a dictatorship, you know, of a, of a you know, in their case it was the empire in in uh, this movie's case it was the third reich, you know, Hitler's army, the Nazis and everything. But uh but you know, in the, in Rogue One, spoilers for that movie, <laughs> but they all die, you know. And um but they all died do they accomplished their mission. And even though most everyone even though almost all of the bastards die, they accomplish their mission. They take down, they successfully take down Hitler and everyone. And, um, I mean, you know, and all the Nazis. And it was just, it was a really satisfying ending considering, well, one, I mean, Hitler and the Nazis did go down eventually, but it was nice seeing a, a more, like, you know, a more um, satisfying end to his reign of terror. Like, just having... Yeah, just having Donnie and Omar machine gun down Hitler was just like really satisfying, and I bet it was really satisfying for anyone who was Jewish, and, and it was probably for them too because their characters were Jewish. So, um, but yeah, it was a great movie. Acting was great, and uh, and all the heroes when whenever they died, or, you know, the ones who didn't make it, I'm like, oh man, they died. You know, that sucks. But but and and it goes and it goes to, um, with uh, it, you know it, it, this and Rogue One, it it um. It it you know imitates real life too, or it it points out because this happens in real life too. You know there are people who win wars, who they might do one small thing, but it's that one small thing that ends up winning the war, and they won't have any songs, 
written about them, they probably won't even be mentioned in the history books. But they're friends. They'll probably have friends that remember what they did, you know. And it, but it, but even if they don't, it's like the fact that they died knowing that they accomplished, you know, what they set out to do, is you know really satisfying. Um, and even the ones who died before they knew that the plan succeeded, you know, they were probably like, oh, okay, well, this is probably going to go well. And and you know, the fact that it, they did succeed was great. And um, but I just I feel like that imitates real life you know, well, because, you know, the fact that, yeah, like most of them die, that does happen in real, in war a lot, you know, most everyone dies. I mean, not everyone, but I mean, in a lot of wars, a lot of people die, maybe most of them die. And the few that make it out are like, well, we won, but you know, and yeah, even though our friends, you know, didn't make it out, at least, you know, we, that we lived on and we won and they'll, and they'll have died, hopefully knowing that what they did, you know, you know, made, made things a little better, you know? I mean, like, like that one small action they did brought the war even closer to, to a good, hopefully bittersweet ending, you know? And, um, and that, and that's why, yeah, I just, I love this movie. That's why it's, uh, definitely at least, you know, not, not too, not too, you know, just the perfect, it's just right in the middle of the list, you know, not the best, not the worst, but a damn good movie and a damn good action-packed war movie too. So, uh, next is number four is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now this one came out in 2019, and it stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt as Rick Dalton, uh, as as act as actor Rick Dalton and his stuntman Cliff Booth, um, basically living in 1969 Hollywood. And realizing that uh, the film industry is rapidly changing, and they're trying to figure out their place in um, this new film industry, and also, and you know, and so while we have Rick trying to, you know, film new shows and movies, you know, trying to find, you know, his next big hit, you know, we have Cliff doing his thing, you know, which is, you know, trying to figure out what he's going to do next, you know, whether, you know whether Rick needs him or not, you know, he's like, he's like, well, does Rick, need, you know, um, just kind of just, he's just, you know, he's, he's trying to kind of look for work too, but there's this rumor of, that he killed his wife. So that kind of, you know, makes it hard for him to find work. Um, and you know, it's just, we follow, and you know, we follow these two kind of, I mean, you know, they, uh, their stories come together, but you know, we kind of follow them throughout a couple days in Hollywood, you know, trying to like doing their own thing, Rick's acting, Cliff's fixing the antenna on Rick's roof. And uh, and while this is going on, we see Sharon Tate, played by Margot Robbie, basically just, you know, roaming through Hollywood, just being the nice, sweet, innocent person she was, uh, going to see herself in the movie The Wrecking Crew. And, um, and you know, is basically it. I mean, there's more to it. Like, um, anyone in real life who knows about Sharon Tate probably knows about the Tate-La Bianca murders that, um, you know, that occurred in real life. But like with Inglorious Bastards, this has, this too has a revisionist history ending where the Tate murders don't happen. And instead the children that Charlie sends to, um, kill Sharon end up going into Rick's house and get their asses kicked and killed by Cliff, Rick, and Cliff's dog, Brandy. (laughs) So, 
so that that was really satisfying to watch too, considering you know, like I said, that in real life, Sharon, and and as well as the celebrities that were in her house that night, were unfortunately killed by um, the children that Charlie sent to their house. Uh, it was nice to see, you know, a happy ending, and it goes and it goes if it's well with the uh, the. Excuse me. It fits well with the title of the movie too, considering that the movie is called "Once Upon a Time in Hollywood." Because it not only refers to, oh yeah, this was like, the, yeah, 1969 was 50 years ago. This was a time when the before the film industry, cha- you know, started changing, you know, whether for the better or the worse, you know. But this was where, you know, people were starting to become less and less innocent, you know, and, and things were changing, you know. I mean, and like I said, whether it's for the better or the worse. Things were changing in the film industry, but it not only refers to that, but it also refers to the fact that, yeah, once upon a time, like it's a fairy tale, because you know, unfortunately, in real life, uh, Sharon Tate was murdered by Charlie's, uh, by some members of Charlie's cult, you know, his children, but um, but the fact that they weren't in this movie kind of provides a nice what if scenario, you know, like a, a you know, like I said, a revisionist history ending, and it um, it truly really does make the title. You know, once you once you get to the end and realize, oh yeah, okay, so they're dead. Sharon's fine, and and, the, and when Rick uh, and Cliff, even though he has to go to the hospital, he got a knife stabbed into his leg. Even though he has to end up going to the hospital, um, you know, he 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 makes it out relatively unscathed, except for the knife in the leg. And um, Rick ends up getting to meet his uh, his next door neighbors, you know, which were Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski. And he ends up having a drink with them, and that's what he's wanted to do throughout the whole movie. So yeah, the movie has a nice ending, and it's a nice fairy tale ending. Consider, I mean, in a fairy tale in a sense that it's a it's a what if once upon a time scenario. Considering that's not how it went down in real life, but yeah, it was it was a nice um, way of retelling uh, what happened that unfortunate incident that happened in real life, and it was just a nice story all around. Because even though Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth aren't real, you know, I their characters were great, and you know it was cool, and and I just really loved the style of the movie. I loved the the setting, just late '60s Hollywood. It just it was really cool to see, you know, all the cars, all the buildings, you know, all the lights lit up at night when Cliff's driving through the city. How it all just looks very vintage and nostalgic. You know, just looks very classic Hollywood. You know, I mean, it does it does look like 60s Hollywood and just it's great but so yeah great movie also probably one of the few movies or probably the movie with the most cameos from previous movies I mean well cameos is in it's probably one of the few movies of his that has the most amount of members from previous movies because Zoe Bell's from Death Proof and Kurt Russell's in it who was also in Death Proof and The Hateful Eight Bruce Dern who was in The Hateful Eight's in here Brad Pitt, like I said, was in *Inglorious Bastards*. He was in the uh, number five. You know, he was in that movie. Uh, he was in uh, *Leonardo DiCaprio's* in a movie that is later on the list. I haven't uh, gotten to it yet, but he was in a previous movie of his. You know, and then there's a few more. Michael Madsen, because he's been in like five or six of his movies. Unfortunately, no Samuel L. Jackson, because which is I found astonishing, surprise, uh, frankly, because Samuel L. Jackson's been in the most of Quentin's movies. But, uh, but yeah, it was a great movie and definitely earned the number four spot. Um, so number three, we have Kill Bill Volume 2. Now this is, you know, basically just continuing from where the first one left off. And it's basically 
Beatrix having to, you know, tracking down the last three members of uh, the squad, uh, Bud and L, and then their leader, Bill. Um, so yeah, this movie was great. And I think I liked it better because even though it's, uh, it's a little bit stylistically, it's a little different. It's not a, I mean, it is a samurai kind of martial arts movie, but it's the first, while the first one, you know, leaned heavily, like it was, it was, you, you know, you could tell it was kind of like, oh yeah, it's kind of like a Japanese samurai martial arts movie. This one feels more, uh, like a Western than, uh, than the first one. Which I kind of like the sty- the tone uh, change, the stylistic tone change. I liked that a lot uh, because it it felt like it was a continuation of the first movie while still kind of being its own thing, you know, if that makes sense. Um, but yeah, I love this movie because it, um, you know, it answered so many questions from the first one, like you know, um, like the bride's real name, which I already revealed <laughs> was Be- is Beatrix, and. Um, you know, it, it, we found out why uh, why Bill and the Divas uh, massacred everyone at her wedding and tried to kill her. You know, we, f- we find that out, which is very satisfying. And it's like, oh, that makes sense. And then we get some more character development and, you know, backstory. And we find out why. I mean, you know, yeah, we find out, you know, so many things. But, you know, like we, we get every question pretty much is answered. And, you know, I just love <clears throat> I just love the movie so much because it it does have a satisfying ending especially considering all of what Beatrix went through so and you know the fact and um it may not have as much action as the first one but me personally I didn't mind that considering uh that I watched them back well almost back to back but there was enough action in this one that I was fine with there not being as much action as the first one there was enough plus I I do like this. I did like the story, and I did like how they ans- You know, they there were more scenes of dialogue, you know, kind of explaining, you know, why they wanted revenge on Beatrix, and you know, just filling in the gaps, you know, and and answering the questions that the previous volume, you know, that Kill Bill one set up. So, I like that they answered pretty much everything, and uh, and we finally get to so- see Bill, uh, you know. As one, I mean, we finally get to see, you know, him in action, his face and everything, and and David Carradine uh, was great as Bill, and it was just cool to see, you know, just it was kind of, it was cool to finally see him all together, you know, because we because like I said in the previous one we didn't see his face at all, so, um, but yeah, it's a great it's a great end to the duology, <laughs> the Kill Bill duology. And, um, and Uma Thurman, yeah, like I said, killed it. Um, she was a great, and she, and she's an example of a great female, um, um, star. Like she, a great female, great, a great written female character. She's badass. She's beautiful. I mean, not that she has to be beautiful, but you know, she's a beautiful, badass, um, you know, compelling character with, um, more, kind of morally questionable, but she's, easily like the best of the divas and it, it was just very satisfying to see her quest for revenge completed and um and that's why I kill, and that's and that's why I like kill bill that's why I like kill bill volume 2 a little better than 1 and why it's a little higher on the list than volume 1 so all right coming up on the last two we have uh number 2 we have arguably Quentin Tarantino's most um 
his arguably his most acclaimed, uh, his most popular, most quoted movie, uh, Pulp Fiction. So, Pulp Fiction basically follows like three different three different stories going on in uh, criminal Los Angeles, and the first story is basically this uh, these characters, or it's it's basically these two hitmen, Jules and Vincent, having to retrieve a briefcase for their boss Marcellus Wallace, and all this shit that goes down um, that day. Uh, and then we also follow this, uh, boxer, Butch, played by Bruce Willis, who ends up, um, um, ends up not taking a dive during his fight and taking off with the money that he, that Marcellus Wallace gave to him. So, you know, we, the next day we end up following Marcellus Wallace, um, hunting down Butch and, you know, we follow Butch's character and, um, the, you know, all the shit he goes through in that day. Cause he, he goes through a lot of shit that day. And then the third story is uh, Vincent, uh, one of the hitmen, um, played by John Travolta, and Marcellus's, Marcellus Wallace's wife, Mia Wallace, played once again by Uma Thurman. Like I said, that this was the movie that was the other role she was in that, that I mentioned earlier when I was talking about Kill Bill. But yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, Vincent. The third story is Vincent and Mia um, going on a date, you know, quote-unquote date, while uh, Marcellus is out of town for the night, so... Um, now I, you know, for the longest time before I watched the number one choice on this list, this was my number, this was going to be my number one choice because it is such a great movie. Like there's just, this is the, you know, this is the, um, most out of order. This is the most nonlinear story of his, like of all his movies, this is the one that's the most out of order. And it really works to the story's benefit because throughout the entire movie, you're, you know, like you get a scene and you're trying to piece it together and it's not until the movie's completed that you kind of get a full picture of the puzzle. You know, like um, like the reason why Jules wasn't with Vincent when Butch came back to his apartment and the reason why Vincent ultimately died, well, not one, not only because of his heroin problem, but because Jules wasn't there, you know, and we, but we don't know. It's like, why was Jules, why was Marcellus getting donuts and coffee? Why, why did he go with Vincent to Butch's apartment and not Jules. And we don't find out until later, you know, towards the end of the movie, when we flash back to earlier in that day when Jules and Vincent got the briefcase, that uh, that he uh, was planning on retiring because of something that happened earlier that day. And it's just and it's just so cool to see all the pieces come together, you know, the further the story goes on. Because, you know, like I said, it being told out of order, you know, it, it, in my opinion, it, it, to me, it keeps, it kept me more invested and not that I wouldn't have been invested if it was told chronologically, but it was just way more interesting as well. I mean, it was even, well, not way more because that makes it sound like it was boring. That would have made it, that makes it sound like it was boring if it wasn't out of order. But to me, it just makes it even more interesting that it, that it is nonlinear. It, it is told in a nonlinear fashion because like I said, you're trying to piece together how this is all going to play out, you know, and how, and it's just, it's just so cool when the movie ends that to see how this all comes together, and um, and this is arguably the Quentin Tarantino movie that has the, or actually no, I think it is it's the one that has the least amount of kills because arguably because all the main characters, and again like the except for everyone in Brett's apartment they all died, and then Zed and Maynard in the in the pawn shop they died, um, or Zed was going to die. I mean Marcellus was going to kill him eventually. 
Um, the only, yeah, I mean, all the main characters pretty much survived. The only ones that, the only one that didn't make it out was Vincent. And that's, you know, for a few reasons. Like I said, one, because Jules wasn't there, you know, to kind of back him up, to protect him and help him out. And two, because he left Marcellus Wallace's gun on the dresser while he went to go to the bathroom. And three, because of his heroin addiction, he was constipated and unfortunately had to go take a shit. Um, right. You know, when Butch, you know, went into the apartment. So, um, but yeah, so it was great. Uh, and, and yeah, Jules, I, I gotta mention Jules, uh, was Samuel L. Jackson's first role in any Quentin Tarantino movie. And it's probably his best, even though he's in the, he's in the number one choice coming up, but this is arguably, I'd say his best role in Quentin Tarantino's movies. And just the journey that his character, that Jules, uh, goes on in the movie is, uh, great. And, uh, and yeah, Vincent was great. Um, and Mia was great. Uma Thurman's, Uma Thurman was great for this being her first role in a Tarantino movie as well. She was great. And, um, and yeah, even though, and like I said, since, uh, it flashes, since Vincent dies about an hour in and then we fl- and then the last hour is like a flashback to earlier the day before in a way it kind of has a bittersweet happy ending when you think about it, because it being told out of order is like, Oh yeah, Vincent's alive, you know, cause we end the movie with Vincent and Jules leaving the diner after pumpkin and honey bunny try to try to rob it. You know, we see them leaving and it ends like we're there, you know? So, I mean, even though we know that Vincent dies the next day, you know, in a way it kind of ends on a good note. Cause it's like, Oh, Hey, they made it out. Even though we know, you know, like I said, we know that he dies the next day anyway, but, um, but I, I thought that was kind of funny too. I appreciated that too. Um, that it ended on a, you know, like I said, a bittersweet ending. So, um, and it's so quotable too. I mean, you know, you got, um, what ain't no country I ever heard of. They speak English and what? Zed's dead, baby. Zed's dead. Um, uh, what's another good line? Um, I don't know. This, there's just so many, it's, it's kind of hard cause there's so many that it's so hard to choose a, another, a good line cause they're all so great. It's just so quotable. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it, like I said, it's a, it was a staple of, uh, Quentin Tarantino's film, filmography, like his f- filmography. And it's, um, and it's one that like, it was, it's a staple of, of all of his tropes and, and everything you see in future movies, you know, it's, it's because of Pulp Fiction. I mean, you know, you see shots of gorgeous women's feet, <laughs> you know, lengthy scenes of dialogue over the top violence, you know, all of this was in Pulp Fiction, and, I mean, and some of that was in Reservoir Dogs, too, but it's in Pulp Fiction that we really get to see all of that in the same movie, and it all, and, and all of it done, like, pretty well, like, pretty, well, masterfully executed, in a way, so, um, so, yeah, so, like I said, this was my number one pick, until I saw the, what my number one pick is now, um, until I saw that movie, and my number one favorite Quentin Tarantino movie is going is and if you know the the 10 that he has directed you already know what it is so there's no reason for me to keep talking and dragging out the suspense <laughs> but uh number 1 is Django Unchained uh this was Quentin Tarantino's first western movie the other one being The Hateful Eight uh and this one came out in 2012 and it stars it's basically Django is a slave played by Jamie Foxx who's freed by Christoph Waltz in his second role in a Quentin Tarantino movie, uh, playing, uh, 
this German guy, a uh, German bounty hunter, Dr. Schultz. And it's basically the two of them going on a journey throughout, you know, pre-Civil War America, trying to free Django's wife, Hildy, from a plant, an evil plantation owner, Calvin Candy, played by Leonardo DiCaprio. And um, I think, yeah, th- this is the reason why this one's my favorite is one, not only did I love the Western setting in the movie, like I loved the, the, the feel and the style and the tone of it, I really loved the acting, especially from Leonardo DiCaprio. Like, he was really great as, like, an evil dick. Like, that's, like, because he was just, he was great at playing, like, like kind of like a, he was great at, like, playing up the, the nice side of his, of his character, you know, like, the, um, but, but, like, when he, when he get when he goes all out, when he goes evil, he, he really goes evil. Like, he, he was played, he was just so damn good as, as, um, as Calvin. And, uh, and, but yeah, not only that, yeah, I, the performances were great. I loved the setting. Samuel L. Jackson, again, this is his, um, another role of his in a Quentin Tarantino movie. Uh, he was great as the manipulative asshole house slave, Stephen, who, you know, like at first we're, he's, you know, he's kind of just like, oh, he's, he's just a house slave. But like over time we kind of see that it seems like he has more control over, um, Candyland than Calvin. Cause, cause we see later that he's, we see a scene of him kind of like manipulating Calvin and it's like, oh, so he, he's kind of, he's kind of like the head, the head uh, of the household. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, all, all of that was great. You know, the setting, the acting, the characters, I just, but I think, uh, and also the, the friendship between Django and Schultz was fantastic as well. And Schultz is un- unlike, uh, Christoph Waltz's previous character, uh, from Inglorious Bastards, Hans, Schultz is arguably one of the nicest characters in any Quentin Tarantino movie. And especially this movie, because he's the only white character who understands that racism is bad and actively treats Django and any, and all the other slaves they run into as, you know, human beings, you know, <laughs> unlike how a lot of the people in the old West and the antebellum South and, and the North too, you know, but unlike how they all treated slaves, you know, so, um, but yeah, it's, uh, I loved their friendship and it was sad, uh, Schultz's ending, uh, but it's just, and, and, you know, I won't spoil to spoil too much, but it, it was great. And, and I loved the ending where, okay, I guess technically I take that back. I'm going to spoil the ending. <laughs> um, but when Django, when Django comes back to, when he gets back to, uh, Candyland, when he gets back to the, uh, Calvin's plantation and he takes out the rest of them and Steven and just blows up the, 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 the mansion. I'm like, holy shit. Like that was, it was, it was just such a, and again, it's a revisionist history. Um, I mean, even though, I mean, there may have been a slave named Django, but there, this wasn't like a retelling of, of a real slave, you know, like I, there wasn't a, cause obviously something of that magnitude would probably have made it into the, would most likely have made it into the history books. Like if a, a freed slave blew up a plantation and killed, killed all the owners, you know, killed all of its owners, they, they would, that would probably have made more of a, uh, historical impact, you know, than for, you know, for it to not be mentioned, you know? So, I mean, it was too, it was too, it was too grand of a, of an event that happened for it to be, for it to not be mentioned in history books, you know? So, but anyway, it, um, yeah, so it was just, 
it was I, I loved the ending. Like I said, it was just it's a really satisfying ending. Uh probably the most satisfying ending of Quentin Tarantino's movies. And that combined, like I said, with the acting, the characters, the setting, the relationships and friendships. I think this is that's why Django Unchained I'm gonna have to go with um I think all all of those things combined is um why I'm gonna have to pick or go with Django Unchained. Sorry. I think all of those reasons combined is why Django Unchained is my favorite uh, movie from Quentin Tarantino. And considering that he's only one movie away from retiring from making movies, he's still going to like, I, I think I think he said he was going to write for TV shows. And like I said, he still had the stage play of The Hateful Eight coming up. So he still got that. Uh, I think he may work on it. I think he said he was going to create a TV show or at least, or if not, he was going to write for TV shows. But, uh, but he, considering he's only one movie away from retiring from directing movies, um, I can't wait to see what his last 10th, according to him, but 11th counting, if you count like I do, and a lot of the fans do, if you count Kill Bill as two movies, I can't wait to see what his last and 11th movie is going to be about. Um, is it going to be another Western? Is it going to be a, you know, a, re- a revisionist history retelling? Is it going to be set, is it going to be set in modern day? Is it going to have a lot of, um, you know, uh, is going to be, have a lot of crime and, you know, one thing for sure, it's going to have a lot of violence, a lot of lengthy, witty dialogue, you know, and a lot of, and, and a lot of gorgeous women's feet, that <laughs> a lot of feet shots, you know, that's, those, the, those are the three, again, except for like with the Hateful Eight and Reservoir Dogs, all three of those have been in Quentin Tarantino's movie. So you can count on that uh, being in his last movie, so if nothing else, you know, those three, uh, those three tropes of his, those three things that are staples, those three staples of Quentin Tarantino's movies are definitely going to be in his last. So you can, you can bet, you can bet on that. Um, so yeah, I guess that just about does it for, uh, tonight's second episode. Thanks again for everyone who listened to the first episode and this one. And, um, I know this one was a little bit longer, but I had a little bit more to say, you know, uh, and I had 10 movies to go over, you know, so, um, but yeah, thanks for everyone who listened to the previous episode, the first one and this one, and I hope you liked them, and I will hopefully see you guys next week, where I will be talking about, um, you know what, I'm gonna leave it a surprise, um, but yeah, I'll, I'll hopefully see you guys next week when I talk about a TV show, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a hint, I'll leave it at that, it's a TV show. Uh, so take care, have a good weekend, and I'll see you guys next time. Take care.